Aloha, this is Pastor Perry, and I want to thank you for joining us online to study the Word of God together. We pray that you will be blessed as the Holy Spirit ministers to you through this message and through God's Word. Now hear the word of the Lord. It's found in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, you are not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Dan, thank you so much for reading the scripture today. Appreciate it. Will you join with me as we pray and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word? Let's pray together. Our faithful Father, our loving Lord, our great God, we worship you. We honor you. We thank you for the many good things that we have in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that those good things outweigh the bad that goes on in the world. We, we thank you for the forgiveness of sin, and we thank you for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the beauty that we see around us in the world. We thank you, Lord, for the love that we experience from friends and, and family members and the joy of, of playing with children, Lord. We thank you that you've provided well for us and that we can live comfortably and we live in a beautiful place. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word. You've given us your spirit to live in us so that we can follow your word and live productive lives. And we thank you, Lord, that we have the hope of eternal life and spending eternity with you in a perfect place made perfect forever. Lord, we pray that in the midst of the challenges of day-to-day life, that you continue to help us be obedient, to be thankful people to you, and to let others know that we are grateful and thankful because of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we look into your word now, we invite the Holy Spirit to teach us so that we would not only learn, but we would behave in a way that honors Jesus Christ. May the Holy Spirit speak through me words that are true and accurate and life-changing for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Los Angeles resident, 33-year-old Larry Walters had a dream of being an Air Force pilot. And so he went to the Air Force, and he took the physical, and he discovered his eyesight was too poor to be a pilot, so he couldn't follow that dream. Instead, he became a a truck driver, but the the dream of flying never went away. And so on July 2nd, 1982, in San Pedro, California, Larry and his girlfriend filled 45 weather balloons with helium. They bought a lawn chair at Sears and Roebuck, and they attached the helium balloons to the lawn chair, and Larry dubbed the lawn chair inspiration number one. And Larry packed his lawn chair with all the essentials, with sandwiches and cold beer and a CB radio. And for those of you who are too young to understand a CB radio, that's what we had before cell phones, so he could communicate with people. And so he had a CB radio so he could communicate with his girlfriend left on the ground while he's flying in his wheelchair. And he also had a pellet gun with him. And Larry's plan was to fly a few hundred feet up in the air and float over to the Mojave Desert 
and then used the pellet gun to shoot out a few of the balloons, you know, as necessary, so that he could descend softly onto the desert floor. Well, do you think this would be, this would be his dream come true, or would it be a nightmare? <laughs> well, you need to remember that Larry was a truck driver, not an aeronautical engineer. And so as soon as the cables were released, his lawn chair immediately shot over the air, not a few hundred feet, but to 16,000 feet, putting Larry and his lawn chair in the flight pattern of the Los Angeles International Airport, where two wide-eyed Delta pilots saw him and radioed in that there was a man in a lawn chair at 16,000 feet. Be careful. <laughs> well, 45 minutes into his maiden voyage, Larry was finally able to let go with one hand and, and shoot out a few of the balloons, and then he dropped the gun. Well, he started to descend very slowly, and eventually he ended up landing in some power lines, causing a 20-minute blackout in the city of Long Beach. Finally rescued and on the ground safely, some reporters came and they asked him, said, Larry, were you scared? He said, no, not really. They said, are you going to do it again? <laughs> nope. And then they said, what on earth inspired you to do this? And Larry thought for a moment and then he replied, well, you can't just sit there. Well, I'd like to show you some slides of Larry's balloons there. You see his balloons, his 45 balloons. And then a picture of Larry himself before he blasted off, and he's just in his lawn chair sitting there. There he is. There's Larry. And uh, he even had a parachute on, so, you know, he's, no, he's not nuts. No, not him. <laughs> you can't just sit there. No. I certainly don't recommend any of you trying to duplicate Larry's stunt, though if you go online, you'll discover people have, you know, um, with equally frightening experiences, I think. But we saw last week in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, that if you're a Christian who is all in, if you're committed to Christ, that you're not just going to sit there. Paul uses the picture of a sacrifice, and a sacrifice is something that's all in, every part of you. You sacrifice the entire animal. And as Christians, we are to be all in, or as Larry might put it, you can't just sit there. Now, I don't want you to get up right now, of course. You should sit there right now. Um, but when church is over, your commitment shouldn't end. Your commitment goes with you when you're not sitting there, and you go out in the world, you should still be all in for Jesus Christ. Yes, Committed Christians come to church, but committed Christians stay committed once they leave the church building. They're all in. Today, we're continuing in our series, which is entitled Truth Matters, as an expositional study in the book of Romans. And today, we come to a sermon that's titled Sound Judgment, Sound Judgment. And you could doubt whether Larry Walters had sound judgment, and Paul doubts whether we have sound judgment, or at least he wants us to have it. And so he gives us some pointers on how we can know if we have sound judgment. For 11 chapters in the book of Romans, we have been getting some good theology. And now we come to chapter 12, and 12 to 16, we're going to be told how to put that theology into practice. 
We've been told how to believe, and now we're going to be told how to behave, or in Larry's words, how not to just sit there. So let's pick it up in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. If you are in the room, there's some outlines by the door. If you didn't get one, you're welcome to jump up and get one. If you're watching online, the outlines are available on our website. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Apostle Paul writes, and he says, For through the grace given to me. Grace is that undeserved favor. You don't deserve it, but God gives it to you. And Paul recognized that he didn't deserve what he had. None of us do. He said, I say to every man among you. And when you see that phrase, every man, is a translation from a Greek word, pos, which means everyone. So it includes men and women and children and boys, girls, everyone. He says, I'm saying to all of you, to everyone, not to think more highly of himself or herself than he ought to think. Don't be puffed up. Don't be arrogant. How should you think? But to think as to have sound judgment. So if you think too highly of yourself, then you don't have sound judgment. I want you to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Those two words, sound judgment, come from one Greek word which is translated elsewhere as to be in one's right mind. In Mark chapter 5, verse 15, there's a demon-possessed man that Jesus casts the demons out, and they find him seated, clothed, and in his right mind. So to have sound judgment is someone who is in their right mind. And we saw in verse 2, Paul talked about the mind, and he said that we aren't to be conformed to the world. Some versions say you're not to be squeezed into the world's mold, but instead you are to be transformed, metamorphosized by the renewing of your mind. You see, when the Word of God is put into the mind of the child of God and is activated by the Spirit of God, there's going to be some renewing of the mind so that you have sound judgment. So you start to think right, even though the world around you is thinking totally backwards. Sound judgment. Well, how do you know if you have sound judgment? We're going to look at four things this morning. Uh, they're on your outline, and the first one is this. When you have sound judgment, that's going to result in you realizing that you are important. You are important, but so are the rest of us. We're all important. And humility is not about you putting yourself down. Humility is about recognizing the worth of other people as well. And Paul says in verse 3 that you and I are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. But you also shouldn't think more lowly of yourself than you ought to think. Regardless of who you are, regardless of your abilities or what you're able to do, Paul says we all start the same way, through faith. He says in verse 3 at the end, God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now, some people read that, and I don't agree with this view. They agree that God allots different portions of faith, like, oh, you get a lot of faith, oh, you only get a little, and, and God has kind of some favoritism out there. I don't think that's what he's saying, because in the context, he's telling us that we aren't supposed to be puffed up. We're not supposed to think more highly of ourselves than we should. I think he's saying we all start out with faith. He gives each of us faith, each of us. It's portioned out to all of us. We all are saved by grace through faith. It doesn't matter how good you think you are or how bad you are. You're not too good 
to not need God's grace. And you're not too bad that God's grace won't cover what you need. And some people sometimes think, well, you don't understand, Pastor. I am so bad. I'm like the, I'm like the worst of sinners. Well, that's kind of arrogant. <laughs> you're not the worst. In fact, that title has already been taken. It was taken 2,000 years ago by the Apostle Paul himself. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he says, among whom I am the foremost of all. If anyone needed grace, it was Paul, he says. But we all start out the same. Because God has allotted to each a measure of faith. You put your faith in Christ. And no matter how good you are or how bad you are, you're saved by His grace. Now, Paul says we all start out the same. We each start out with faith. But we all have different roles to play in this journey of faith. And so in verses 4 to 8, he's going to be talking about the fact that even though we start out the same, God has different roles for us. He has different gifts he's given to us. You see, you are really important, but so are the rest of us. But the second thing we see, if you have sound judgment, you're going to realize this, number two. You are not expected to do it all, but you're expected to do something. And those are two extremes. Some people think they have to do everything, and other people think they're not supposed to do anything. Notice how Paul puts this in verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, he says, for just as we have many members in one body, he's talking about the physical body, our hands, our nose, our feet, ears, and all the members do not have the same function. Your ear doesn't do what your nose does, and your eye doesn't do what your feet do. So we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Now, if you've been a Christian for some time, this whole motif of a physical body representing the church and the members of your physical body representing members of the church is not new to you. But imagine the first time you hear this, whether it's in the 21st century or certainly in the first century, Paul's readers, this is like an amazing concept. He's saying your physical body is one. The church is one. Every part of your physical body, you want. You might prefer certain parts over other parts, but you want them all. Like you might be really proud of your, your beautiful emerald green eyes, or your, your flowing red hair, or your big biceps. But just go ahead and stub your little toe on the corner of a table leg, and all of a sudden, what are you thinking about? That little toe is really important to you. And so Paul is using this motif of a physical body to help us understand how the church is supposed to work. And you've heard it many times, perhaps, and there's a danger in that, that you miss the impact of what he's saying. He's saying you are all really important. All of us are. And he's saying you're not expected to do it all, but as a body part, you're expected to do something so let me ask you, what is your something? What is it that you are doing for the body of Christ? There's something you're supposed to be doing. All body parts are necessary. A year ago, I had a splenectomy. That's when the doctor takes out your spleen, and he took mine out. And he didn't even ask me. He just took it out. Now, 
be honest with you, I, I had never paid any attention to my spleen. Never thought about my spleen. In fact, I didn't even know what my spleen did. But I knew it must have been important because God gave it to me. So I decided I better look up splenectomy and find out, you know, what happens when someone removes your spleen. So I looked up online, and here's what happens after a splenectomy. It says, after a splenectomy, you are likely to have pain for several days. No kidding. They cut you open, take out your spleen. You might have a little pain. So I kept reading, and I found this. Someone asked a question. How long can you live without a spleen? I go, I'm really interested in that answer since I don't have a spleen. How long can you live? And here's the answer I saw. One patient died within a month of having their spleen removed. I go, great. <laughs> I better keep reading. So I kept reading, and I wanted to find out, well, what does the spleen actually do? And here's what I read. The spleen has some important functions. Well, yeah, what are they? It fights invading germs in the bloodstream. I'm going, oh, that seems like really important. I wish I had a spleen. <laughs> so wanting to know what happens if you don't have a spleen, you know, with all these invading germs in your bloodstream, I continue to read. And it said, after a splenectomy, the functions of the spleen are usually taken up by other organs. Phew. Usually. <laughs> you might feel like a spleen in the body of Christ. Totally unnoticed. Nobody even knows what you do. But if you get removed, other body parts have to fill in for what you were made to do. And those other body parts already have a job to do. So maybe they don't don't do it quite as well as you would. So don't be a splenectomy in the body of Christ. Now I'd like you to turn the person sitting next to you and go, don't be a... No, it's okay. <laughs> we don't do that. Well, you could after. Don't be a splenectomy. You see, you're not expected to do it all. Spleen doesn't have a lot of functions. But you're expected to do something. And in verse 5, we learn a third thing. Number three, you are not expected to do it alone. You're not expected to do it alone because you need us. You need us. And you might add, and we need you. Works both ways. But you're not to do it alone. Paul says in verse 5, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We need each other. My spleen, apart from my body, was useless. I discovered, though, that I could have saved it if I wanted to. You know, they, they remove a body part. You can fill out a form and say, I'd like to save it. You know, put in a little bottle. Like, what's that? That's my spleen. You know, I could have saved it. But I didn't know. I didn't save it. So what did they do? They incinerated my spleen. Can you believe it? Because it's worthless if it's not part of the body. God teaches us spiritual truths through physical creation. And this is one of those truths. You cannot function without the body of Christ as a member of the body of Christ. You can't. It's impossible. 
You can't do the function you were made for without the body of Christ, without the church, without other believers. You need us. You can't do it alone. It's impossible. It's impossible for my spleen. It's impossible for you. One of the beauties of the pandemic lockdown or lockdowns <laughs> is that they increased our awareness of how much we need each other, that we crave to be back together. But one of the tragedies of the lockdowns is that some body parts have chosen to be ectomies. <laughs> An ectomy comes from two Greek words, of course. Everything seems to come from two Greek words. Ek means out, and tomi comes from the Greek word for to cut off or to cut. So you have cut out. And so we have body parts in the body of Christ that have been cut out, and they can't operate properly, and they're going to die because they're not part of the body of Christ, the church. We all need each other to function properly. And as in the children's sermon with the, the Jenga blocks, at first you can push a few out and maybe you don't notice. Unless you're that block. But you push out enough of us and things start to fall apart. The Apostle Paul lists just a handful of body parts in the church. He gives a more complete list, not a full list, but a more complete list in other books like 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 and Ephesians chapter 4. But here in verses 6 to 8, he gives us some body parts, and we're going to put them on the screen in a moment from a translation called the God's Word translation. It's a Lutheran translation, and I like it because it makes it a little bit easier to understand the way they put it, and I think it's accurate. So looking at verse 6, it says, God in His kindness, gave each of us different gifts. God in His kindness, each of us, everyone has a gift, but we have different gifts just like your body, your hand isn't a foot, etc. And then He gives us some lists, and He starts off with one. He says, if your gift is speaking what God has revealed. This is what translations call prophecy. Prophecy is something that God has revealed. And when we think of prophecy, often we think of telling the future, but telling the future is only a portion of prophecy. Most prophecy is not foretelling the future, but it's forthtelling God's Word. It's exhorting, it's encouraging people, um, even rebuking. And so preaching falls under prophecy, that I'm speaking what God has revealed to me through the Holy Spirit and through His Word. I'm revealing to you. I'm not telling you the future. And if you look at the Old Testament prophets, most of the prophecies they did were not foretelling the future. They do that. Most it's forthtelling. It's saying, you need to repent. You need to get right with God. God's going to punish you, but you need to get right. So the gift of prophecy, or preaching in this case, if your gift is speaking what God has revealed, he says, make sure you say what you say agrees with the Christian faith. Now, that phrase, with the Christian faith, in the New American Standard Version and other versions, translates it according to the proportion of his faith. And that can mislead you. It makes you think that you, you preach according to how much faith you have, according to your proportion of faith. And so some people are, are really emphasized, oh, you just need more faith and more faith, and if you had more faith, you could preach this. That's not what he's saying. The Greek is a Greek word, analogia. We get our word analogy. And so it says preach according or prophesy according to the analogy of faith. Well, back in the Reformation time, 1600s, they took that phrase, analogy of faith, and they said, that means preach according to what the church has been teaching all these years. Don't make up stuff. 
In other words, when you hear a preacher and he goes, hey, I, I've learned something that no one knows. We say, well, how come no one else in the church ever saw this? So he says, when you're speaking for God, make sure what you say, say agrees with the Christian faith, what the faith has been teaching. And then he offers another gift. If your gift is serving, then devote yourself to teaching. No, it doesn't say that. <laughs> it says, if your gift is serving, devote yourself to serving. He goes, if you're not a teacher, then don't teach. Serve. You go, well, how do you know if you're a teacher? Well, teach some people and ask them if you have the gift. They'll let you know. <laughs> if no one has the gift of listening to you, you probably don't have the gift of teaching. But if you have the gift of serving, then devote yourself to serving. That's what you do. And he says, then the next gift, if it's teaching, devote yourself to teaching. That's what you should do. The next gift, if your gift is encouraging others, then devote yourself to giving encouragement. If that's your gift, do your gift. If you're an ear, do what ears do. If your gift is sharing, then be generous. If your gift is leadership, lead enthusiastically. And if your gift is helping people in need, Help them cheerfully. From this partial list of gifts and Paul's admonition, we come to our fourth point about sound judgment. And the fourth thing that you'll realize if you have sound judgment is this, number four, that you are not expected to be the best. You're expected to do your best. You're not expected to be the best, but you are expected to do your best. In other words, if you're called to teach, teach Sunday school, and as you heard today, we could use some Sunday school teachers. If you are called to teach and you go, well, I'm not the best teacher in the world. Well, of course you're not the best teacher. Only one person in the world is the best teacher in the world. You know, I don't know who that person is. You can't be the best teacher in the world. There's only one. But you can do your best. That's what you're supposed to do. You can study hard, you can be prepared, you can be nice, you can be spirit-filled, you can know the kids' names, you do your best. If you're called to serve, maybe by making meals for people, you don't have to be the best cook in the world. That best cook is in Italy probably, right? You don't know where the best cook is. You don't have to be the best cook, you ought to be a good cook. You ought to be a decent cook. You just have to be able to cook better than I do, and that doesn't take much. Or if you're to serve and you go, well, I don't have much energy. I'm only good for about an hour. Well, then be good for about an hour. You do your best. You don't have to be the best. You're not to be comparing yourselves with other people. If you're called to give, then give generously. You go, yeah, but I don't have a lot of money. Well, it's not about how much money you have. It's about how generous you are with the money that you do have. The, the, the woman... A widow with two copper mites. She was the most generous person on the planet because she gave all she had to live on and it was worthless. And yet she was generous. She did her best. You're not expected to be the best, but you are expected to do your best. Paul started off by saying, don't think more highly than you ought to think of yourself. But neither should you think more lowly of yourself. Look how the Apostle Paul puts it in another passage. I'll finish with this passage, 1 Corinthians 12. He's talking about the different body parts. And in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 20, he says, But now there are many members but one body, 
And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker, like your spleen, they're necessary. We're all necessary. So even the weakest, most seemly body part is necessary. You are necessary. You don't have to be the best. You just have to do your best. So my friend, please use sound judgment when it comes to your value and your gifts. And don't just sit there. Be all in. Would you pray with me? I'd like to ask you to bow your heads if you're in the room or if you're still watching online. With your heads bowed, so you can have a private moment. I want to ask you, have you recognized your need to be saved? That you're a sinner, you've displeased God, that Jesus Christ died for your sins, He rose from the grave, He conquered death, and He's offering you the gift of eternal life, and you have to decide what to do with it. And you don't want to just sit there when it comes to your eternal salvation. If you've never asked Jesus Christ into your life to have your sins forgiven, but you recognize your need and you want to be forgiven, in this very moment, why not cry out to him and say, Lord Jesus, I believe, please save me. And he will. Christian, as we continue to pray, are you using your gifts for the benefit of the body of Christ and the glory of Christ? Lord Jesus, help us to use our gifts, those ones that we've already discovered as well as the ones maybe we haven't yet discovered. Help us to do our best, to be all in for Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.